and welcome to the Station Tapes on 21 Soul. I'm your host, Lewis Marks, and on this podcast, I share intimate interviews with some of the best musicians in the world. In my role at Rope It Ope, I get to interview each artist as we prepare for the release of their latest record. I want to get the backstory, a sense of their intent and motivation around their new release. I've found that given the opportunity, in a relaxed setting, they feel free to open up about musicianship, life, and the challenges of being a professional musician. This week we visit with Adrian Harpham, drummer, engineer, producer, and the founder of Modern Icon Recordings. I first met Adrian when we released the first Light Blue Movers record on Robodo. Understated, mysterious, Adrian carefully states only what you need to know, unveiling new parts of his world as time passes. This year, Modern Icon Recordings released albums from Stephanie McKay, Fema Efren, Brockett Parsons, and of course, the next record from Light Blue Movers. Right here we are, Twenty One Soul Music Podcast. I'm here with the great Adrian Harpham. Adrian, welcome. Thank you. Great, to, great to talk to you, Lewis. Great to be here. Great. I, I, I'm, I am notoriously unprepared. You know, sometimes I actually, with with certain of these interviews, I do get a list together. But you and I have become friends, so we're we're hanging out, we're talking all the time. So exactly yeah uh one of the things that i wanted to to get for for people who don't who don't know your name your background and and how how did you come into music in the in the first place i think when we were trying to do this earlier i was my my father was a young father he's 22 years older than me so when i was a little kid he was very much hip to everything that was happening so and and still in a loop, super listening music phase you know, as people get older, they stop listening to music so much. So Stevie Wonder, Songs of the Key of Life, Boss Gags, Asia, Steely Dan, Fats Waller, Art Tatum, Duke Ellington. Wow. Beatles, Dylan, you know, all that stuff was being cranked around the house, like nonstop. I loved all of it. You know, even tons of classical music and Motown. And how, how do you suppose he had such diverse interests? Just because of the time or... Because of the time and because of his age, and also he had super hip friends who were constantly on him, like, you got to check this out, you know. Right. I was lucky. And then we spent one year, you know, we moved to Philadelphia area when I was seven. And then when I was 10, we moved to England for one year. And I got completely addicted to this TV show called Top of the Pops. Yeah. yeah. And then I just got really fascinated by, you know, all those artists, Elvis Costello, Pretenders, Blondie, Boomtown Rats, <laughs> Devo, oh, yeah. whoever was happening at that time, you know, I got really, you know, you start to see them and their whole presentation. So by the time we came back to Philly, I was really flirting with music like crazy and was hanging out with a lot of young musicians who already could play. A Andy Kravitz being one of them, another guy named Steve Wolf. Can you break down those two cats for me? So for, for folks who don't know, uh, I was just looking at Andy's Wikipedia page. It starts with Criss Cross and Roughhouse, Roughhouse Records, right? Yeah, Andy, basically, like when I went to music school and went to become learned, he went into being an intern at Studio Four. And he was in the right place at the right time and became the session drummer, the intern, the gopher, the engineer, the producer, he just got in on a lot of levels on this wave of classic, huge records that Roughhouse spearheaded during that late 80s, early 90s, which was Criss Cross, Cypress Hill, The Goats. I mean, it, 
I can't even Jazz Seven Eight Three, Jazzy Jeff, uh, Schooly D. The list goes on and on and on, and it goes into rock too. Joan Osborne. I mean, th- th- that was a whole scene of people, and it was a really super hot time where they kind of ran stuff from Philly. Like Philly was dominant between 88 to 96 or something. Mm-hmm. And what about Stephen Wolf? Stephen went more the virtuoso route that like I was trying to do. He was trying to be the next Billy Cobham or whatever. And uh, he was at Berkeley School of Music before me and ended up playing with Hiram Bullock. Like he was the first one of us to get a gig. So he was playing with Hiram Bullock and... Scott Henderson, Lost Tribe, Grover Washington. He was with Patty Austin and, you know, ended up being on tons of records and was in New York, you know, relocated to New York before I did. And so Steve and I ended up in New York and, and, you know, to this day, he's, uh, he's become very well known in the drum world as being one of the greats, you know, but Andy's thing happened way earlier than either of us where, and he, he was a, became a master of the studio, you know, a master of the recording realm. Mm-hmm. So it's just really, it's like I, I didn't come from a musical family like a Neville's or Marsalis or whatever, but I came came of age or whatever came to music surrounded by badasses. I mean, Andy and Steve are just two of the people. I could name another five people that were around when we were kids. How did you make the choice of drums? The year we spent in England, I started beatboxing, <laughs> driving everybody crazy. And uh, the standard thing, you know, getting the pots and pans and chopsticks and just tapping on on the floors just became a primal thing, wanting to kind of lock up with records and hit things in a rhythmic way. And I mean, I felt all of music, but the rhythm part of it, I felt really super hard. And it just got to where everybody's like, you have to get a drum set, you know. Do you think that there's a particular personality type that 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 grab it, that that hears more rhythm? Well, I I I don't mean personality type, but it's like is it is it? I think uh, if like you unique kind of person, I guess. Yeah, I don't know about person. I mean, drum drummers are soulful people. You know, intelligent drummers <laughs> are very soulful and very earthy, and they can kind of perceive a lot of things larger like long game things or big picture things more than some other people that if I could just say that for a second but also if, if you can if I could just say there's like gift gifts or talents I think I had I was definitely given a gift that in music that attracted me to rhythm first okay and so I had you know you have to answer that call when it comes like that you have to answer it and some, you know, some people hear harmony. Some people have incredible gifts in harmony or incredible gifts in melody or incredible gifts in complex, you know, writing, composing complex music, but they don't, they don't feel rhythm in the tribal visceral way. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So their gifts aren't so much in that area. Whereas I definitely feel that I have gifts in that area. And so I feel thankful for it. Yeah, it's also pretty physical too, right? I mean, it's yeah the most yeah. physical of all the instruments, wouldn't you say? So there's a there's a feel there. Absolutely, yeah, absolutely. Doing it, it's not just you composing, right? Or singing. It's I mean, you know, well, singing I guess is, but every every instrument is physical. But drum seems to be the most so. Yeah, probably drums and piano, 
In a piano, you need both hands and you need, and you need both feet. But drums, you need both hands, both feet, and like your feet are really doing something more than the piano is. But like you know, you you have to attack an instrument, the instrument with a certain amount of power and musculature, but sophisticated tone and I don't, you know. If but it, it starts off with you hitting something, you know. So <laughs> yeah. hopefully, hopefully you can hit something and eventually just start hitting something in a more refined way, huh? but you're still hitting something. So, yeah. Uh, uh, that's a quotable right there. Yeah. Um, let's go, let's go forward. I mean, you, you, you know, session and on the road, you, you've worked with so many people in Leo Nocitelli, Alashie Muhammad, Bernie Worrell. I mean, it just goes on and on and on. Mm. What, what are the, what are some high points? For you, or and I, and I really mean that not just as like um, you know I respected this musician the most, but the ones that kind of challenged you and changed, informed your style along the way. along the way. Like which any 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 points of people that you played with that we were like you know what this this is challenging and I'm I need to change up. Yeah, I'd say I've seen these things online with some drummers. This is a game changing moment, right? So. Right. Just a game-changing moment. I think there's a few of them. So I was basically a high school talent show drummer, you know, like like a, the guy that was good in the talent show. Right. <laughs> and then I got with Alan Dawson, who has taught Tony Williams. Mm. And he absolutely changed me from being kind of, you know, B-level, whatever, into like somebody with, with real chops and technique and ability to play eloquently so alan dawson like as far as teacher that was like the big first big leap development wise alan dawson and he taught tony williams he taught kimba denard vinnie cauda like he's he was a jazz legend i played with all, a lot tons of great people but that i kept improving technically up until my early 30s and then i met leo nostelli in la and i and he asked for a tape or whatever. I, th I think you could still yeah. send people tapes then. So I sent him a tape. He really liked it. So we started playing together. And another game-changing moment when I did my first gig with him, I'd say in the, fir the first 10 minutes of playing a gig with him changed me forever because the way he, he played so absolutely convicted and emotional with every single note and I was paying attention and I was like, Oh my God, you know, like as a drummer, for example, you want to have perfect time. You want to have great meter, perfect time. But when I heard Leo play and feel rhythm with such authority, conviction, soul and emotion, emotion is the key word. Perfect time meant nothing. It's like you could have a drum machine playing perfect time and then you could have Leo going, you know, and I would say, well, that thing's perfect. That machine's perfect. But this guy is rocking the truth. I, I don't, I want to know what that is, you know, mm -hmm. you know, and so that was a game changing moment to, to play with him. And then every single time I was on stage with him, it was just an absorbing of, that vibration, you know, and he would, he also took me aside after the first sound check and he said, man, I know you can play. Uh, don't try to play like Zig. There's, there's no, oh, there's only one Zig, you know, Zigaboo, Modalise. Mm -hmm. 
just be you. I know that you have you your thing. You know, I've had all the notoriety I need in my life. Uh, I want people to walk out of this club talking about you. Him saying that was another game-changing moment, like opening the door for you or, or uh, giving you permission, you know. Mm-hmm. And my, my generation, we tend to fall prey to being the student of something for too long because all the people in the generation before us were like the innovators. And, <laughs> you know, it's like, what if we innovated, you know, Nirvana? I don't, I don't know. I mean, I, we definitely innovated some stuff, but we don't – it's like an inferiority complex. It's like – well, we're not, none of us are Dr. John and none of us are Taj Mahal. And none of, <laughs> you know. It has something to do with risk, doesn't it? I mean. Brave, yeah. It's, yeah well, that's the thing I got from Leo. It was like braveness. It's like courage, you know. Total conviction. And playing with Ali Shaheed and Rafael Sadiq, those people, mm-hmm. that was more of like a learning. It added to more showbiz savvy and more savvy about style and hipness mm-hmm. and presentation. And same thing with band Chromio. Chromio is the same thing. Like they were like phenomenal as far as like style and hipness and savvy about how people perceive you. But, and I got musical things out of it, but it wasn't as huge as the, the Leo thing. And then in more recent years, playing with the, the late Henry Butler, who just left us a week ago, Every, you know, I had an eight-year association with him without ever saying it consciously or trying or calling it that. He mentored me, basically. His conviction as an artist was was unlike anybody. His his mission was, his thing was like, I love music. I'm going to do this my way. And I'm going to mess with any style I feel like. And, and play as great as uh, as much or as little as I feel like because I want to. It's like if you showed him Brazilian music, he's like, oh, cool, and he would learn it and then immediately put his own thing on it. And he would say, this is the way I want to play Brazilian music. This is my vision. And so not only play, playing with him, playing just playing with him completely changed me just because to play with somebody that ferocious and phenomenal and in the moment and spontaneous, you know, hurling time bomb, uh, hurling bombs at you, explosions at you. That was one thing, but then just his attitude, you know, his attitude towards music, like took me back to being to an artist mentality, you know, not a craftsman mentality, an artist mentality. And I realized that I had lost that. I totally lost it trying to please everybody on their, on the different gigs, you know, Interesting. Yeah, it's weird to get a mentor later like that, but you know, as long as they come. when the teachers come, when the teacher shows up, right? That's you got to be ready. But we taught each other a lot of stuff too. You know, I would always play. I'd play him new, new music, tell him about new keyboard sounds, and mm-hmm. new rhythms. I think I played him Thundercat. You know, I played him Anderson Pack. Yeah, I played him Kendrick. You know, I mean all. Uh, Whatever it was I was into, I would try to play for him if I was with him, you know. So Did he have the obstacle of, uh, like, the sound being different with new production, like, at first? Or, or did he just immediately get what it was? No, that was probably a bit of a disconnect for him. He had to work harder to, even though his playing was light years ahead of anybody, and he's like a prophet, you know, kind of showing you what could happen in the future. But... 
as far as yeah, production techniques and sounds, he had to work hard to get up to what was happening now. When you've seen so much, a lot of what you hear that's happening now, you feel like you've already heard it before, you know? Mm-hmm. So, yeah, we informed each other with that kind of stuff, so. Nice. So, so that brings me right to your next question is, how did you, how did you begin producing music? So totally organically. What I was just saying about Henry getting me back in touch with my artist mentality, it was something that was lying in wait for like maybe 12 years before Henry. So I was getting really tired of playing with all these like great songwriters, but then some kind of whack songwriters. And so I started writing tunes and, you know, not very good ones, but, and then trying to play all the instruments on the little four track or digital four track. And, you know, eventually you master the cassette four track. You master how to use it and how to tweak the sounds and you get a digital and you master how to, arrange things on that and so by the time i got to having like a little pro tools rig in 2005 it was getting to where i was crafting every sound like it was uh oil paints you know what i'm saying like or every recording like it was a painting i did a couple solo records where i was playing all the instruments and singing when some people started to hear those records i started getting some offers organically to produce them you know and so it just kind of came about for me kind of learning how to produce my own music and going through that process of learning how to write and and learning how to edit and arrange getting my act together I got a little sound and then people got attracted to that sound and then it's just built up to where you know you bring your sound to other people that get attracted to that you bring it to their project and then and then as a result too of going through the process of sounding really bad and you know all the neurosis of Mm -hmm. getting it together you become very nurturing with other people and totally compassionate and you understand how crazy it can be to make a record you know does that make sense yeah absolutely and and it and it's it's just interesting and i'm not sure how much time we have but it was you know you you and i've had some discussions about that process i get the sense that you have a very unique gift and that is a vision of what the of what the of what the painting needs to look like yeah yeah early on in the process rather than waiting till later and saying okay that's what this looks like you you can you can envision it and then you start putting colors together to make it into something yeah I, i mean i can definitely i can envision it immediately and i'll write it down and i'll even tell it to them but then we both try to be super open to what's going to happen once we're working. So then the vision can change right. once you're inside the room. It's just to have it to begin with, to me, is I want to learn more, and I look forward to talking with you more about this in the future because I, I work with a lot of different musicians. But And, you know, it's funny to people on the outside. It's like, well, musicians, they're musicians, right? <laughs> well, but then you get in and you see the different skill sets that people have. Yeah. Uh, and this one is really intriguing and fascinating to me because I don't think too many people have that and so I'm glad you're producing I'm glad you're in the studio for the sake of time here I want to I want to shout out here the the release that came out and how we first connected and that was with the album like uh, like blue movers album yeah Atlas right there's a second one coming yeah the second one the second one is uh it's looking like we're going to call it teleological devolution you got to explain that now so <laughs> And then, uh, and then parentheses, the Venice Sessions, part one. So 
we went into the studio at the end of 2016 in LA. We were all in LA to do our CD release. It took us forever to get that together because everybody's so busy. But we booked studio time and we just let tape roll because that was something that we had talked about like for years during the previous making of the Light Blue Movers record. The previous Light Blue Movers record was made in groups of one, two, three, or four. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like it wasn't, we were all weren't in the same room at the same time. It was a very produced, piecemeal, put together record. But we sounded really unique together playing live as well whenever we play live. So we just let tape roll. And uh, this wild music came out that sounds like like life today, basically. It, sound, it like reflects the chaos, turbulence, and disruption of everybody's inner <laughs> peace. That you know, that's what I thought of when I heard it back. I was like, man, we're just—it just sounds like people questing, you know. But in a good way, it's very attractive sounding. But it's we just let tape roll, and then all these pieces of music emerged, and I edited it down to where they sound like actual songs. But it, it, all the performances are completely in the moment. There's no, there's no production. I mean, there's was there any pre-composition at all, or was it just? I, I think there's one song called Naivete that's Jonathan Levy, the bass player wrote and he showed it to us and we play it, but we still play it totally open. And mm -hmm. uh, I don't, I think there's barely any drums on it, but it's just, it's such like a mood piece. Mm -hmm. So that's the one composition on there. Um, I guess I should explain the title though. Teleological devolution. Well, teleology. And I just learned about this word. This was Gabe, the guitar player coming up with that. It's like, the natural order of things, but reaching an end, right? Like the, with an end goal or the, the the end result of a natural order of things, right? I think that's what it means. Mm -hmm. So, and then devolution, that was a name that I had on, on the record for a while, which is like, basically, I mean, it's the truth. We're, we're in kind of a devolution, like the world and definitely America is in a devolution right now. It's like, forward and then like massive moving backwards just and it's i want to be optimistic that it's it's like everything's got to get worse before it gets better but mm -hmm. nonetheless we're in a devolution so teleological devolution i guess you could put that together as a, a devolution like a uh, a degradation or a backtracking of the net arriving at you know like wow that's heavy. Yeah. <laughs> and the music is heavy and the times are heavy. Yeah. You know, that's beautifully stated. I, I want to shout out real quick because I'm going to, let, let me, let me wrap that up and just point out that the record teleological devolution, also the Venice sessions, part one. Mm -hmm. Yeah. September 7th on modern icon recordings via Ropadope. Mm -hmm. And I want to just sort of close out here today with, with your statement on what modern icon is and what you hope to do with the label. You, you really helped me come up with that the idea of having this imprint. Basically the concept to begin with was if we could take new artists and make something timeless, not just flash in a pan, but it's like modern, like right now, but also timeless. Like we'll, be resilient because it's so strong artistically and then also take veteran artists and make something totally fresh on them, you know, cause that seemed to be who I was producing and collaborating with was like either people much older or my age and younger. And so it was like this combination of 
mix, mixing old with new and with, but having, you know, having music with root and backbone and history, but having a futuristic slant. And that, that, that's, it's common that you're the producer on each of these records that's on, that's on the, that's on the label. I'm the producer on everything. I'm the like, producer main instigator on everything except for the, the record that FEMA is going to do. Uh, FEMA Efron mm-hmm. come out, I guess we're saying late October. Yes. And that's FEMA's record. Like I, I wasn't the producer on it, but I am doing remixes on there, which will gotcha. add, will tie the sound in, I guess, you know, we'll tie it in sonically to some of the other things. Beautiful. So we, we have, and I'm going to shout them all out right here for people that, that, that are listening to go and check out Modern Icon. Uh, Jack Snyder, a.k.a. Leia, which is really you and Jack sort of collaborating a little bit. Yeah, it's like collaborating the, on music. Yeah. The two of, that record is the two of us basically fighting over the mic and the guitar and the, <laughs> the, 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 the faders. You know, it's like, yes, yeah, two people, basically. It's a wonderful record. I'll, I'll be proud of that for forever and then and then stephanie mckay you know her ep just came out like a month ago or maybe three weeks ago mm-hmm. and uh, we had bobby sparks on a couple of things we had a couple of light blue movers guys gabe gordon and jonathan levy my obviously i'm all over it bass player fred cash i'm trying to think who else is on there jonathan Marin, bass player so there were a few outside collaborators but you know, still me and Stephanie most of the time. And then, you know, and then Brockett Parsons. Yes. That's probably going to be a very serious event when that comes out. Um, You know, he's the keyboard player with Lady Gaga past eight years, invented the circular keyboard, Mm -hmm. piano arc. And uh, I've known him since we were, since I was 19. So the record. Really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We've known each other since we were in college. You know? So it's just—it's just really fascinating. I mean, I, I see you know be, being in the role of a label person and think about branding and, and collections of music. Modern Icon is shaped up pretty quickly to be a very unique and distinctive collection of music. It's—it's it's pretty exciting. It'll be nice that as we get to the end of this year and look back. Yeah. You know, at this many records ago, this is what the body of work looks like. These things have a way of, when you're in them, seeming somewhat different. And then you look back and you're like, oh, that that all ties together nicely. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, this year's, for as crazy as this year has been, losing Henry and all that kind of stuff, it's, it, as far as this, yeah, Modern Icon is going to be an amazing year. Last year, we just had Leia, you know, but this year, so thankful for your open-mindedness and you're helping to nurture this situation. Yeah. It's, it's going to be beautiful. It's pretty easy for this night. I thank you for, for, and, and everyone on, on modern icon for the, the beautiful music. I think a lot of people take music for granted. Sometimes hard work. This is, this is distinctive music that people should pay attention to. Yeah. Uh, anything else you want to say to folks as we, as we close out here? I mean, as like a advice or like a, as a words of encouragement or, I don't know. <laughs> I just threw the question out there. <laughs> no, I just want to make sure that we covered everything, you know, that, that you might want to talk about in the process, you know. Of, uh, I mean, we, we could go on for days. There's so, so much to talk about. So hopefully we'll find some other um, moments to put some stuff down. But, yeah, check out 
check out Brockett's record. Stephanie McKay's record, Brockett's record, FEMA, Efron, Next Nightly Movers. And then and dig in. Yeah, dig in to all these people, man. There's just such yeah. a history here. What an incredible group of, group of individuals, you know? So absolutely, yeah. It's uh it's 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 a deep yeah, it's a deep well of beautiful musical information and pedigree, you know. Uh, FEMA's record will have Nate Smith, you know, Nate Smith, Chris Potter, Adam Rogers. Um, oh, nice. Nate's on, Nate's on FEMA's record. Nice. Yeah, and then uh, on Brockett's record, Mono Neon is on there. It's going to uh, be one big family, man. Bobby Sparks came, came through here the other day and, you know, visited. I wasn't here, but uh, yeah, looking at everything on the wall, he's like, I know that, I know that, I know that, you know. So, yeah. yeah. Adrian Harpham, Thank you so much. Really appreciate you, my friend. Likewise, likewise, absolutely. You at the next label meet. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, oh man. Talk soon. Blessings. Well, that's our show for today. Thank you for listening to the 21 Soul Music Podcast. If you like what we do, please subscribe on Mixcloud at 21 Soul. And you can also find us on Stitcher and iTunes. Our video series of interviews and music discussion is also available on YouTube at Ropadope 99. 21 Soul is recorded in East Philadelphia at the Ropadope Room. Our producer is Nick Perry. Our general manager is Fran DeRubo. The 21 Soul theme song is an excerpt of Red Hook Soul by Mr. Michael Blake. Big thanks to all the people who keep the Ropadope flame burning, all the musicians who pour their creativity into the world, and thanks to those of you who are taking the time to listen. We hope you enjoy the show.